0: my name is Adrian Goldberg and welcome to the Byline Times podcast. The Byline Times telling you what the papers don't say, what radio doesn't report and what telly doesn't tell you. This time assets and arrogance. The British public school system which has produced two of the last three prime ministers and prides itself on creating the elite which runs our country. Many of these educational establishments which are of course actually private schools and restrict entry to the wealthiest members of society have themselves grown considerably richer in the last few years. Ian Overton has been crunching the numbers in an investigation for Byline Times. The
1: top leading private schools in England have increased their asset wealth by over half a billion pounds. This is an absolute huge amount, 44% increase from 1.36 billion to 1.96 billion in just six years. This was a time when national inflation was just 13%. So it's outstripping inflation. It's a real accrual of assets that almost defies belief.
0: And what kind of adults do these schools turn out? Richard Beard went to a boys' boarding school in the 1980s at exactly the same time as David Cameron and Boris Johnson.
2: You're left in this sort of vacant space where you can be anything, be all things to all people. Uh, And I'm not sure those are the qualities that really lend themselves to effective and
0: good and noble and virtuous leadership. All that to come. First, just a reminder that the Byline Times podcast is funded by subscriptions to the monthly Byline Times newspaper, which did so much to expose government sleaze long before it became fashionable in the mainstream press. So go up, head over to bylinetimes.com for details on how to subscribe. It would make a great Christmas present as well, just saying. And if you have already subscribed, thank you. Now, elite, fee-paying, independent schools exert a remarkable grip on British society. A report by the Sutton Trust in 2019 found that 65% of senior judges, 59% of high-ranking civil servants and 57% of the House of Lords were privately educated. This despite the fact that only around 7% of British youngsters go to what are sometimes anachronistically referred to as public schools. Many do take a tiny number of underprivileged kids as part of their justification for achieving charitable status. But Ian Overton has been looking at their balance sheets for Byline Times and found out that some of our longest established private schools have been growing their assets, whether measured as cash or buildings, on a scale that is way above inflation and in a manner that makes you question whether these places really are charities as most people would normally understand the term.
1: The team I run, the Byline Intelligence team, looked into the annual reports of a group called the Clarendon Schools, which was a group of nine English private schools, also called public schools, confusingly, The Clarendon schools are named after a 19th century royal commission to investigate the state of schools in England that were privately run. And we found in the last six years, the top leading private schools in England have increased their asset wealth by over half a billion pounds. This is an absolute huge amount, 44% increase. From 1.36 billion to 1.96 billion in just six years. This was a time when national inflation was just 13%. So it's outstripping inflation. It's a real accrual of assets that almost defies belief, given that each of these schools, of these nine, are actually charities. The nine schools just for clarity are Eton, Charterhouse, Harrow Rugby, Shrewsbury, Westminster, Winchester, St Paul's and Merchant Taylors and these are schools that charge an annual fee of something around the region of £39,443, according to their websites. And bear in mind that the average UK salary this year was £31,461. So it costs £8,000 more just to send a child to one of these nine charities than it does the annual average UK salary. And our point is, these are charities that seem to be accruing wealth on a scale that seems to be almost unprecedented in their own histories, with a 44% increase, number one. And number two, we are concerned that this huge amount of wealth increase is not in line with the school's own claims that they will make what they call is education to all regardless of a student's socioeconomic background and the question is is why are they pouring so much money into assets either cash in bank or the building of very expensive projects such as swimming pools or extra houses when at the same time they do not seem to be funneling that money into scholarships and bursaries. So on average, of the nine schools, just 3.4% of pupils were on full bursaries last year. I'll give you an example. Charterhouse, for example, endeavours, uh, and I quote, to make education available to all who are sufficiently talented and where possible, irrespective of financial circumstances. The bill every year there is £41,406 but only eight pupils 8 1% were awarded a full bursary last year and to put that into perspective charterhouse increased their assets since 2015 to 2020 by 100% increasing their assets from 43.7 million to 87.5 million so there's some fundamental questions as to why are these charitable schools massively increasing their asset wealth, but not increasing the number of pupils who are being granted bursaries and scholarships.
0: And what have the schools said about that?
1: Well, we we approached Charterhouse and they haven't replied. The one school that did reply was St. Paul's. And they said that the um, 101% increase in their assets was right. But it was down to an increase in tangible fixed assets due to the construction of new buildings to replace the clasp buildings the school was restricted to building 50 years ago when we moved onto their site, and which had a fixed lifespan, which is now over. They said categorically, this is not a case of the school growing funds and sitting on them. The St. Paul's in 2015 had total assets of £83 million. And in 2020, they had total assets of £173 million. So your listeners can take from that what they will. But the parallel concern is not just about the charitable status, but also even listeners who might believe it is their right to send children to private school. I'm sure some of your listeners who might be, say, well-heeled professionals, barristers or doctors, may themselves find it eye-watering to send a child to Eton, for instance, which costs £44,000 a year. It's interesting that the Times reported earlier this year that some British schools, though not necessarily the Clarendon Group, reportedly paid agents in China up to £10,000 a year to recruit overseas students. So there is almost a kind of a, a snowballing effect that's occurring in private schools in this country, where they're so eager to attract overseas wealth and very high income parents to send their children to these schools, that they're creating these sort of Paradise gardens of education, if you will, these pleasure domes of schools where they're doing immense makeovers. Eton Science Department, for example, was given a £20 million makeover in 2019. They've just constructed an aquatic centre with a 25-metre pool with a movable floor that's underway. St. Paul's, which we heard about earlier, has just done a 10-year building project costing £114 million. The society magazine Tatler called the results fabulous. St. Paul's also has an RIBA award-winning science building and a drama centre, which is called possibly the best school theatre in the UK. And also St. Paul's itself has a rare books room. I mean, you know, I'm sure there are plenty of schools in this country that don't even have one rare book, let alone an entire room dedicated to them. And I think this raises fundamental questions as to charitable status and also as to wealth accrual. We approached the former leader of the Labour Party, Jeremy Corbyn, and he told us that this research demonstrated why the charitable status of Clarendon schools should be abolished in line with Labour's 2019 manifesto. Corbyn said that this policy would pay for universal free school meals for primary school kids, something which is more needed than ever, with poverty and inequality under the rise under this failed Tory government. But I think there are lots of issues here. Now, clearly, some schools do need to build buildings in order to educate in. And that immediately puts a very heavy weight on your asset books. But having said that, most of these schools are very much rooted in having ancient buildings. And it is not necessarily only new buildings that are being created in this asset grab. Now, some schools, it must be said of the Clarendon Group, have not shown a massive rise. Westminster School, for instance, in 2015 compared to 2020, only saw an increase of £16 million pounds in assets, which are 11% increase. And that is in line with inflation. But Charterhouse wealth soared by 100%, St Paul's wealth soared by 109%, and Eton College saw its assets rise from £445 million to £611 million, which is a 37% increase.
0: Let's be clear then, we are talking both about cash in the bank, but also the value of the physical assets of the school, the buildings. Indeed.
1: And so clearly, some schools have increased their cash in the bank. Rugby school, for instance, increases levels of cash held in the bank from 2.5 million in 2015 to 7.7 million in 2020. But yes, some of these are fixed assets, such as buildings, and some of
0: them are current assets, such as shares, stocks, or cash. And from the Charity Commission's point of view then, the question you're asking is, how can these schools justify their charitable status when the value of their assets is increasing significantly, yet the access to the education that they provide seems as far away as ever to most ordinary children of limited means in this country? Indeed, the Charities
1: Act defines a charity as an institution that provides benefit to the public. And it is a real struggle to see how any school sitting on millions upon millions, both in bank and in assets, fixed couldn't be charging £40,000 a year, really, you're getting into territories, that's not even out of reach to a professional. I mean, it is out of reach to a professional, it's out of, it's almost out of reach to people earning £200,000 a year, if they also have mortgages in big cities. I mean, it is a huge amount of money that you need to pay. And this is after tax. And most schools in this country seem to be lurching towards trying to encourage overseas education, so people coming in from far away. Now, this also raises a deeper philosophical question, as a lot of these schools are boarding schools, seven of the nine are boarding schools. And then there is a, a psychological question of, are these schools providing a kind of gilded opportunity to children as young as, I mean, particularly if you're looking at feeder schools to these Clarendon schools, prep schools, so children as young as seven or eight being sent far away from their parents, if their parents, let's say, are Chinese multimillionaires, being sent to Britain for this austere education, this almost Victoriana education, and yet the school is profiting, in a sense, from it and then pushing those profits into assets. The child is being forced to undergo an educational system thousands of miles from their parents. What this ultimately does is it reinstates the power nexus of what these schools represent, both in Britain and overseas. It is a form of soft power. And the reason I say that is because, let's look at Eton, for instance. Now, Eton today has not only produced a staggering 20 prime ministers, but if you look at the architecture of Britain's state today, Eton has produced... As we stand, the Leader of the House of Commons and Law Presidents of the Council, Jacob Rees-Moggs, the Chief of the General Defence Staff until a few days ago, General Sir Mark Carlton Smith, the Archbishop of Canterbury, Justin Welby, the outgoing editor of Britain's most influential paper, The Daily Mail, Geordie Gregg, and the Justice of the Supreme Court, Lord Leggett. So the main pillars of the British state, Parliament, Army, Church, Press and Law, all have an old Etonian the tiller, with, of course, Boris Johnson leading the way. And this isn't to mention our king-in-waiting, Prince William and his brother, Prince Harry, who both attended the school. And it hasn't always been this way. In fact, if you looked 100 years ago, in 1921, the prime minister, the leader of the house, the chief of the general staff, the archbishop of Canterbury, none of them went to Eton. And whilst it's been said that Eton's influence in the late 1950s and early 60s, when he got Etonian educated Harold Macmillan and Sir Alex Douglas Hume as prime ministers, a joke did the rounds that a sign could be hung up on Eton's gate saying, cabinet makers to Her Majesty the Queen. I would argue that today's crop of Old Etonians seem not just to dominate political power, but all the other central pillars of the state as well. So you've got this very curious situation. You have the entire architecture of Britain's elite in terms of political and social elites dominated by Old Etonians. At the same time, Eton itself is accruing more and more wealth. And almost further establishing its own dominance in the architecture of power of this country by offering an education that is not only unrivaled, but unaffordable to 99% of this country.
0: Ian Overton. And you can read much more on this with Ian and the Byline Intelligence team at bylinetimes.com. Now, it's almost taken for granted that when you buy into these elite institutions, your child will get an excellent education. Academically, that may be true, but Richard Beard has a different story to tell in his book Sad Little Men, Private Schools and the Ruin of England. The book is a memoir of Richard's time at Radley College in Oxfordshire and Pinewood, a prep school in Wiltshire, where he boarded from the age of eight. Just a term earlier, David Cameron had become a boarder at another prep school in Berkshire, and the 11-year-old Boris Johnson was being sent away to school in Sussex. Richard says the experience of being forced to leave his family as a youngster has marked him for life, and he's bound to have had an impact on our current and last but one Prime Minister.
2: It's quite easy to remember the feeling of homesickness, which is what it is. You're left in this place, your parents drive away. Although the worst bit was just before then, before they drive away, is they're somewhere in the school probably talking to, to someone about you know, paying the bill or getting the right socks in the right place in the school. And, and you're somewhere else going off, eight years old, being shown around by a bigger boy who seems to know everything. And for me, there was this terror of my parents leaving without me saying goodbye. This was a real sort of severe case of catastrophizing because I, I didn't want them to go without saying goodbye, because if I wasn't going to see them for that time, it was, it was months at a time before you saw your parents again. I did think they might die and I wouldn't have said goodbye or I might die in this school. It was that an extremer feeling of this is the end of something. And then, of course, they do drive off and you're left with these kind of feelings on your own, trying desperately not to cry. And because other people seem more successful at this, it does seem like nobody else is crying. And you learn later that they're all feeling as sad as you are. But you just join in with this kind of mass denial, like in a cult of none of us are sad, when in fact all of us were sad at the beginning of every term. And this was repeated three times a year. Then, of course, you get involved in the school, get busy, play some rugby, do well in your tests in class. And those emotions are pushed out of sight, but they are there. And at some point there will be a reckoning with those feelings and they come back and and they challenge what it means to feel and what it means to feel secure and what it means to, to get on, and what it means to, to be in a community. And the answer is normally to hide, to hide what you are, to hide what you're feeling. And that's something which can carry on a, a long time into adulthood.
0: Yeah, you write in the book that you were good at The three things, really, that the school valued, one was schoolwork, the other was rugby, and the third thing was emotional repression.
2: Yeah, and I wanted to make that point because it's quite easy for the apologists and defenders for these schools to say, and they've said this to me since the book comes out, oh, well, you, you just didn't like it and you, you were a little squit, to use their language, a little squit in the corner <laughs> and you're an exception and the rest of us were running around beating our chests and playing other schools of rugby and doing well in Latin and loving every minute of it, best days of our lives. But actually, that's not the case. I had the kind of profile of someone who really ought to have been making the most of this in the sense that I was doing all those things well. I was very happy on the outside. The damage is being caused, I think, to everyone who was there in some way. And this damage is long lasting and hidden because the fact that it's hidden becomes the kind of key note of the experience, the hidden emotional experience. And I really want to make that point strongly is that, you know, I'm not sitting in the corner crying for the whole of my education i am running around and i'm doing well and i seem to be thriving but it is a seeming it is just the the appearance of the thing because i also became very good you know as I say in the book at emotional repression uh, and that actually wasn't my achievement that was my problem and it took a long time to work that out
0: you did and we hear about this in the book raise the whole question with your mum about why she'd let you do that, why she'd sent you away. Were you satisfied with what she said? She was really pleased to talk about it, and
2: she was very happy to open up. I think she'd been wanting to talk about this for a long time, but there, there is a system of a murder with these schools where no one really wants to talk about it because everything is sacrificed to the perceived outcomes, that if people are successful later in life, clearly the education worked, and there can be no real nuance about the damage it might have done. Mum was really happy to talk about it, uh, and I'm enormously grateful to her for being honest and open about how she hated it. She hated sending us away to school. I think this is probably quite a common story. She would say that my dad, her husband, was making the decision. She couldn't really do anything to resist. But at the same time, this idea that it's for the best overrules other considerations.
0: And you've used this phrase then that was commonly used in public schools at the time, settling down and this i think goes to the heart of the dysfunctionality of the adults that are churned out by public schools. so just explore that for me if you would that what settling down really means and how it comes to influence you much much later in life Well, well, the idea of settling down is essentially that you don't kick up a
2: fuss. You don't point out the fact that you're very unhappy to be left at school without your parents, without your siblings, without your toys, without your home life. And settling down means really to, yes, push down your reaction to that, to, to get it out of sight and to show the famous stiff upper lip. The problem with that is that that becomes a model for any type of emotion later on is that it becomes to be viewed with suspicion because you can't trust your own emotions if you're told that your homesickness which is intense and very real to you is going to pass isn't the most important thing that is happening in your life at that point then any strong emotion you'll think well the same thing may be true that what i'm feeling is not important here and if i settle it down then somehow life will be better but if you settle everything down sooner or later it will find a way to come back up again
0: yeah, what I thought was really interesting, and you have experience of two boarding schools, your prep school and then Radley School, where you went uh, as a secondary school pupil from the age of 13, was that the institutions, and we can use a plural for that reason, the institutions and the other boys themselves colluded with that sense of shutting away your honest truthful emotions. The boys would have bullied you if you'd shown any sign of weakness. The school would have made you feel that you were not doing the right thing by your parents if you hadn't settled down.
2: Well, that's right. And it becomes tribal and that the tribal nature of it is what carries on into adult life is that none of us want to show this emotion because it's a sign of weakness. So we all became complicit in pretending that we weren't feeling it and mocking mercilessly anyone who was unable to make that pretense. And this kind of jocularity this joshing this banter becomes a central part of diffusing emotion and you see that in adults as well you see it as a major aspect of the way business is done in the house of commons for example
0: and you quote hannah arendt the german jewish philosopher who escaped nazi germany and wrote famously about the creation of totalitarian states and you draw a parallel between being brought up effectively in a public school than living in a totalitarian state.
2: Well, I think there are some interesting parallels there. And the the two books which I rely on for this, if you like, adult basis to look at it in a way which isn't English, because I think you have to get away from England to look at these English institutions. And Hannah Arendt is very useful to do that. And a Canadian academic called Irving Goffman, who wrote a book called Asylums, which is about institutions and how they work on the people stuck inside them. And by joining Hannah Arendt and Irving Goffman together, I think it's a very convincing portrait of what happens within English boarding schools. Irving Goffman called these institutions, like asylums, like boarding schools or navy ships, total institutions. Uh, They're total institutions because they do have, whoever's in there is under the total control of the teachers in that case, the headmaster, the tradition, the system which has been in place for a long time. And that total institution clearly links to the totalitarian institutions that Hannah Arendt is interested in and it is an experience of absolute power to be in an English boarding school and the staff in particular the headmaster it feels to the boys or girls who are in these schools that they are subject to absolute power and that's an experience which again causes damage for
0: later on. One expression of that was the morning lavatory parade which was about testing whether boys had been to the toilet or not, and you could tell the teacher whether it was a tick if you'd been to the loo or an X if you hadn't, but nobody checked. And, And you say this was all about the expression of power from the school, not about whether they were really interested in your bowel movements. No, I don't think it was. And it was a way
2: of keeping you occupied as well, because the day is timetabled to the last minute so that there isn't too much free time to get into trouble. In terms of that particular kind of operation at the school, this lavatory parade, going in after breakfast, going into these toilets with with no locks and coming out and saying tickle cross to the teacher and making up patterns, which sounded nice because it was as unimportant to us as it was to them in some ways, in the sense that it didn't have consequences in a medical sense. But the fact that we were doing that is an interesting example, because when people have read the book, have been to these schools, hear about that, they don't think there's anything odd about it at all. People who haven't experienced these schools think it's absolutely amazing. And this is one of the reasons I wanted to write the book, is because a lot of the, particularly men in power, see nothing odd with a lot of these strange daily events that we went through as children. Whereas anyone who wasn't there sees how astonishing it all is and i think there's a this is interesting contrast and it's come out really strongly since the book has come out
0: and you extrapolate from your own experience then of boarding schools to both boris johnson and david cameron and i mentioned the emotional repression the emotional self-censorship that you went through how else then do you think that public schools influence and have influenced those two very powerful people Again,
2: one of the reasons why I wanted to explore this idea and write the book, partly because I'm a writer, that's what I do. I try to express what has happened to me. It is a memoir as well as a polemic. But I know about the specific period in the history of English private schooling from 1975 through to kind of early mid 1980s when I was at these schools, which is exactly the same period as Johnson and Cameron were in these schools. And I was thinking, well, whatever was working on me worked on them as well. And these schools at that time were incredibly isolated. And I can't really speak to how they are now. And there are lots of people who are looking at it now and come up with conclusions which are not entirely dissimilar. But that's not really what I feel comfortable talking about. But I could feel very comfortable talking about this era when I was there, when they were at these schools, and we were isolated in a way that I think made us racist. It made us sexist, made us classist. And we were taught to believe that we were superior to everybody else who hadn't been through our education. And I think that was one of the strongest effects that the schooling had on us.
0: And you talk about the creation of boy men, men who never quite lose a boyish sensibility. In some ways, that might be a good thing, I suppose, because it's good if people keep their their youthful innocence. But that's not what you're talking about, I don't think.
2: Well, no, there's different aspects of what kind of inner child remains. And I call the book Sad Little Men because one of the problems here is that when you arrive at these schools, age eight or age 11 or age 13, there's no psychological research which shows that it's good for you at any age to be separated from your family life. No no matter what age you, you arrive in these schools, that sad little boy who arrives at the beginning and is sad about being there has to put up defences to survive. And inside these men as adults, there is that sad little boy. And I call them sad little men because there are, in these schools, the eight-year-old boys are often called little men. They made a point of, you know, within the school, these are the little men. And that sad little boy then determines the way that the adult behaves forever after and is looking to protect himself. It's looking to make sure he's not the butt of the jokes and making sure that he can make progress often at the expense of others. So that's part of the inner child which survives. Another obvious way is the importance in the UK of the old boy network is you go back to your school days, you go back to your school friends or people like you have been similar schools to get help. And again, it's very exclusive. It doesn't allow other people into this very select group. So that's another type of inner child which survives. And it's not really the inner child that, that people mean when they say keep in touch with your inner child. It's a much more kind of toxic relationship than that.
0: At the same time then as this repression of yourself and this sense of superiority, this disdain for outsiders of all sorts, be they people of perceived lower social class, people who are not of the same skin tone as you, there is this other thing that these schools seem to inculcate, which is an incredible arrogance and Perhaps overconfidence, which I think people will (laughs) draw their own conclusions when they look at both David Cameron and Boris Johnson and see that in their characters.
2: Well, I think that arrogance is just a natural consequence of being told that you have been given the best education that money can buy. I mean, if you have the best education, by implication everyone else has a less good education. And if they had a less good education, by implication they're now less educated. And you could say that means less intelligent, less equipped for life, which again reinforces this idea, well, I had the best education, therefore I must be better. Uh, And I think that's just implicit
0: within this system of, of segregated education. When you look at Johnson and Cameron, then, I mean, you clearly see that these traits in them, which are traits that are calculated to be part of the public school education, are playing out in them as they've played out in your life. Yeah, I don't think there's a calculated to be the result and there
2: are many teachers in these schools who are good people who are just following the the wrong values. They think they're teaching all sorts of other abstract nouns which are good and proper and virtuous. These just happen to be the real consequences as opposed to the kind of aspirational consequences. Uh, but when I look at Cameron and, and Johnson I I just see everything that I'm trying to combat really from my own childhood and it was for me quite shocking to start off the the first lockdown and look at them and recognize them as boys from my childhood and recognize them as recognize myself in them and not in a good way and just to feel that I know something
0: about these people and I think other people should know this too. In terms of being leaders of men which again is part of the the cell of these schools when you went to your first public school in 1975, I think you said you got the sense that that public schools were on the on the way out, that this at that time was seen as a pretty old-fashioned concept.
2: I think numbers were going down, especially in these prep schools for boys from age about seven to 13. They hadn't yet changed to become co-educational just to get more people in. There hadn't yet been the 1989 Children Act, which meant that you, simple things like Telephones needed to be available so that the children could contact their parents. The heating was often insufficient. Famously, the food was not very good. And they look back really to an earlier era, uh, particularly the 1950s. But then you could say, well, in the 1950s, they look back to the 1930s and so on. I mean, they look back to an era of empire when these schools were there to train children to go off and run the empire. You had that coming into conflict at the end of the 70s with new ideas of first, how children should be raised, and secondly, the new place of Britain in the world. So there was a kind of tension there, which wasn't resolved very well. And the schools, I think, were in decline. And it was hard to believe that this was where the future of Britain would come from. And in fact, you had in the next decade, in 1980, Douglas Heard, the foreign secretary in margaret thatcher's government famously said he couldn't be prime minister because he went to eton uh, it was thought that those days were past and then in this kind of reverse miracle we then have two old etonians within a decade being prime minister again which i think did feel unthinkable in the 80s but these schools did revive in the 80s because there's a very clear graph that correlates lowering investment in state schools and higher applications to private schools. And that happened throughout the 1980s in the conservative governments. And that revived these schools uh, enormously. So by the time they came into the 90s and after the Children's Act, when they did seem more comfortable and therefore more palatable to parents, the numbers increased and they have resumed their place in some ways at the centre of of society.
0: You touched on empire. And as you say, many of the products of these schools in times gone by would have gone out to rule various parts of the empire or have significant administrative roles in empire and you're suggesting that because britain has no longer had an empire of any size that's why we're feeling the impact of these public schools very particularly in british life today
2: well that's one of hannah Arendt's ideas she's absolutely explicit about this in the origins of totalitarianism and she sees this with the insight of someone who, who's outside the system, but she thinks in some ways Britain has been saved up until the 1950s by the fact that these irresponsible, game-playing, emotionless characters have gone off to ruin other people's lives in other countries um, and have saved Britain at home from too much of the effect of that. And it's interesting that should come from Hannah Arendt, who, who's a thinker in you know, who people are increasingly interested for her insights in the 1950s, which seem increasingly applicable to the new kind of populist politics of today.
0: But because Britain no longer has an empire or no longer an empire to to speak of then, we have a generation of people raised in the same way, and you say this kind of style of education goes back really to the 19th century, a generation of leaders raised in the same way but whose activities are focused almost exclusively within the UK.
2: Yeah, I think there's two aspects of that. One is that the worst kind of products of these schools are now staying in this country and making their you know, their influence felt. The other aspect is that in previous generations, especially through the 20th century, that there were wars which forced these children as adults into, into a collision with the rest of society and with experiences which were, as powerful and more powerful than their schooling, and therefore it changed their characters for the better. And it meant that they couldn't stay entirely isolated in in terms of class, I think, in particular. Whereas now, this generation have never had a collision with reality in that sense, and therefore that sense of entitlement and arrogance has never been tempered, and they enter into positions of power with all that entitlement intact, which I don't think has been true always of previous generations because
0: of world events. How would you sum up the impact of your public school education on you? I and
2: anyone else who's been through this education needs to acknowledge the privilege and the preferment which we've been able to get from these schools. It is a way of moving on quickly in almost every profession in Britain, and that needs to be acknowledged. Having acknowledged that, it is possible to escape from the worst of it. It requires life events, life accidents, which take you outside that very small bubble we all know about bubbles now thanks to the pandemic but it is a bubble and if you never get outside it you would never really know that there were any other values or any other priorities to challenge those that we were taught at school so although I wouldn't wish unfortunate events on anybody there is a sense in which to end that entitlement that comes with that education life has to happen to you and you have to let it happen to you outside the bubble at the same time, I think it is important to always acknowledge the advantages that come with this education. And that's something which you know, makes the country as a whole feel impoverished, really, because it blocks out other people from having those opportunities, which we are given as a matter of course, and which has been true for
0: decades. You know, it's been fascinating to talk to you, Richard, but of all the things that you've said, I go right back to the start of our conversation and that image you present of an eight-year-old boy and other eight-year-old boys separated for months on end from their parents, especially their mums, and the emotional repression which follows that, which you think has tainted the body politic of this country because so many of our leaders have experienced this.
2: Yeah. And that sense of hiding of your own feelings is core to the experience. It's core to the experience of going to a boarding school, um, not to show that emotion. But if you hide your emotion and you lose sight of what it is, it becomes very, if you don't know what you feel, then you don't know what you want. And then if you don't know what you want, then it's very easy to to shift with the wind or whatever's required to to become a kind of diplomat. You can want anything at different times. And that's not really very far from then having no principles, having no conscience, because you never really are confident in what you want, because you're not confident in what you feel. And therefore, you're left in this sort of vacant space where you can be anything, be all things to all people. Uh, and I'm not sure those are the qualities that really lend themselves to effective and good and noble and virtuous leadership.
0: But you see a direct line. From that to the Prime Ministership of Boris Johnson and before that, David Cameron and the personalities of Boris Johnson and David Cameron.
2: I do. I think they were moulded in these schools and they haven't turned around and looked back
0: and had a reckoning with themselves. Richard Beard, author of Sad Little Men, Private Schools and the Ruin of England. If you want to comment on this story, feel free to join the conversation on Twitter. We're at byline times pod or you can email goldberg radio at gmail.com i'm adrian goldberg this has been the byline times podcast funded by subscriptions to the monthly byline times newspaper get more details on how to subscribe at bylinetimes.com that's bylinetimes.com thanks for listening see you next time